was 2020, early 2020, I think, or maybe yeah, 20... maybe just before the pandemic. Like. It was just before the pandemic because you said you were coming to the UK, I think. And, and yes, yes, that's right, that's right. Just before the world changed. <laughs> yeah, the world turned upside down. You, you, you've seen um, on my article on um, socialism in the Journal of Nature Studies, and uh, thought I might, uh, yeah, be in the UK. Then suddenly, uh, travel just came to a crashing halt. Absolutely, and uh, I, I thought uh, I really loved the article at the time, and. Um, because I'm a, I'm a good boy, I read it this morning again, and I, I still and I still found out I still really really liked it. Yeah, I haven't read it since it came out, so you might actually uh, know its contents better than I do now. <laughs> okay, I, okay. <laughs> what I liked about it when I reached out to you was that it was it's very counterintuitive, uh, Robert. Um, it's really counterintuitive article because the prevailing wisdom on Nietzsche is that not a socialist. And your article is on Nietzsche as critic and proponent of socialism. So it's a very sort of measured account of what Nietzsche has to say for socialism and against socialism. Um, and that's that. You start the article by saying uh, the picture of Nietzsche as a thinker who simply disdained socialism dies hard, which I thought was a nice way of putting it. And I know the story you were talking about there, right? You know, Nietzsche's anti-socialist. You know, he's a rabid individualist. He's anti-collectivist. Uh, he doesn't like equality. But, yes. but he is a critic of socialism. So I thought that could be a good place to start bef- where we, where, before we move on to talking about what he has to say about the, the benign sides of socialism as a political philosophy and as a political uh, therapy, I suppose, as well. Um, so having said that, wh- what are the common criticisms of socialism in Nietzsche? And what does he, what does he not like about socialism? Yeah, sure. No, I'll be happy to answer that. But before I do, just a quick preface, uh, just underscoring something that you said. I I do believe that we suffer from a a general um, desire or tendency to sort of assign a a very specific and fixed set of positions to Nietzsche, right? So we can put him in a box and say, ah, Nietzsche thinks X, he denies Y. And uh, I do believe that those are the very habits that Nietzsche so often was concerned to resist by what you might call his art of writing. He writes in such a way that systematically undermines uh, people's desire to freeze him into certain definite positions, right? I mean, he's a he's a thinker whose thought is always on the move. And so, I mean, that was something that I had um, you know, come to discover by experience and by reading and by thinking about Nietzsche. Uh, but really, yeah, I wasn't, uh, despite that, I, I was not expecting to find that Nietzsche has such subtle and interesting things to say about the question of socialism until I was rereading some of the so-called middle period texts, Human All to Human, uh, the first volume, then a second volume, uh, uh, Sorted uh, Opinions and Maxims, and The Wanderer and Its Shadow. I, I was rereading those because I was in the middle of... Um, uh, trying to write a book about the gay science, uh, which has um, come out since then. And um, through rereading uh, those uh, so-called middle period texts, I just discovered, wait, there, there, are so, there, there, there are so many interesting things that he has to say uh, about this topic. And so when that article came out, yeah, um, a person who um, I didn't know him at the time, he discovered it, I think, uh, maybe the same way you did. And uh, we, we've since become very good friends. And uh, he, he told me that, yeah, no, this was an attempt to address a topic uh, that is uh, well known, but not known well. <laughs> right. That's yeah, like, yeah, that's right. Nietzsche's thought on socialism. It's, it's well known, but it's not known well. And so uh, if you want to make that transition from something being well-known to it's being known well, 
you've just got to sort of spend time with the text and read them and interrogate them. And so, yeah, so that, 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 that's what um, I did. And again, it wasn't something I was particularly setting out to do. I, I just, uh, I was rereading these texts for a somewhat different purpose. And then I, then I thought, wait, there's so much here for and against various forms and uh, mutations of socialism. He doesn't reduce even, even socialism itself is not just one thing, right? He, he compares it to a, a force of nature, yeah, I think the term in German is Nasermacht. Yeah, it, it's a, he compares it to something like the steam engine. And uh, rather than say, okay, are you for it or against it? It makes more sense to ask, well, okay, um, given that it is a powerful force that summons up uh, very um, sort of violent passions at times, what to, to what um, use can this force be put? And so yeah, I guess that, that was the question. I mean, yeah, that's his point of departure in a, human alter human uh 446 and i thought yeah okay that's an interesting question nietzsche allows that under certain circumstances we must do everything we can to strengthen this uh force uh, that, that he calls socialism so i just started to wonder well okay what would those circumstances be yeah so so that that, that was kind of the setup of the article but yeah but you, you, you were asking a, a question about uh yeah, what what would Nietzsche's uh, sort of? I mean, why why is he generally suspicious of socialism? Right. Why is he generally suspicious of socialism? And what's the what's the conventional picture of him even? Right, right, right. Yeah, because I think I think it is a good idea to um you know, start with that. So yeah, I mean, I, I gave my little preface about reading Nietzsche, but yeah, I mean, I do think he's genuinely suspicious of much of the rhetoric that socialists uh, tend to use. A, a favorite term, right, of most any socialist is um, justice. Right. So, uh, I mean, a, a partisan advocate of socialism will typically market himself or herself as the, having a heart for justice, caring about justice and suggesting that, uh, you know, the status quo uh, with its inequalities is absolutely unjust. Um, we, the socialists, have the solution. We are the party of justice. And it is true. Nietzsche is, uh, especially in the so-called middle period works, uh, Nietzsche is always looking for uh, the gap between the uh, professed motives of people and what their actual motives are. Right. Because we, we all tell ourselves stories about uh, what's motivating us. And uh, these stories usually tend to uh, flatter us and tend to cast us in a good light. Right. 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 And so, so it's a part of the project of human all to human. I mean, it's really it's a project of what he calls psychological observation. And he's very much inspired by uh, some of the French moralists, uh, especially uh, Pascal and uh, La Rochefoucauld. And uh, so, so part part of the um, suspicion of the socialist is is, is uh, involves a an, an interrogation of their motives. Are, are do, do, do socialists generally really are, is is justice the true motivation, or is it is it a desire for power? Is it envy? Is it greed? Is it uh, what he would call in the genealogy of morals? Is it ressentiment? You know, so I, I do think that the Nietzsche wants to um, interrogate the actual motives of socialists and distinguish those from what he says. I mean, rather, he wants to distinguish those motives from uh, the, the professed motives of socialists. He's pretty direct about that. Is he drawing a Marxist distinction there? Marx famously said, whatever I am is not a Marxist. You know, he's a, is, uh, is Nietzsche drawing a distinction between socialism and socialists? Or socialism is a force of nature that you mentioned already and the individuals who actually practice it. Because the way you've posed it there is dead interesting. He's, he, he reminds me, at least in this regard, of Orwell. <laughs> Orwell, who was very sympathetic towards socialism, not so much towards socialists. Because there was um, there was a disjunct between um, 
their motives and <laughs> their act- the actual things they did. I think I think that's a great connection, Patrick. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. I, I would definitely endorse that particular uh, way of connecting Nietzsche and uh, Orwell. So yeah, so a distinction between yeah, socialism as a force which can be used wisely or unwisely, and everything depends on um, circumstances and uh, application. But then, yeah, the motives of socialist, um, yeah, Nietzsche does find are generally suspect, or at least at odds with the rather idealistic, high-minded picture they they, they paint of themselves. And so, yeah, there, there's a great image. Lofty rhetoric. Lofty rhetoric is... Very, very lofty rhetoric. Yeah, uh, but but their actual motives are are um, somewhere um, different, and so I, I don't remember if I quoted this in the article or, or not. But Cuban Alto Human four fifty one is great. I mean, just the title, "Justice as a Party Lure," says it all, right? So so justice is is something that's uh, it, it's an ideal that's used to sort of attract you know converts to the party, but then um, yeah, what Nietzsche says is uh, that the the demand for equality of rights made by socialists of the subjected caste never flows from a sense of justice, but instead from covetousness or greed. Right. That that feels like home, Robert. That very much feels like Nietzsche, that Nietzsche that I know and love. But it's like it's like what's he saying there? He's saying that the socialist, at least, quite often does things not out of a desire for the good or the uh, the the moral or the just. They do it to become for resentful reason, they do it to to own, to control, to right because yeah, I mean they're they're the have nots and they resent being in the condition of being a have not. They they want to join the haves. They they want to become a possessor, and uh, so yeah, they they, they see uh, this uh, wealth that they do not possess, and they think, oh, look, yeah, I would like that too. And, and so this aphorism that I just mentioned, uh, yeah, I mean he compares them to a lion. Yeah, I, I don't again. I don't remember if I did anything with this in the article, but I, I love the comparison of the sort of average socialist and his underlying psychology to that of a, a roaring lion who uh, really, really wants a piece of meat. So he says, yeah, if someone holds bloody chunks of meat near an animal and then yanks them away until it finally it roars, do you think that this roaring signifies justice? <laughs> right. So, right. Yeah, so, so the, the roar of the passionate, indignant socialists who very much wants to make the transition from, you know, the uh, have-nots to the haves. Yeah, that, that, that's more like passionate roar of a lion who simply wants his piece of meat rather than anything that's particularly noble or uh, high-minded. So, yeah, so that, that's definitely one side of the equation. I mean, that there's this uh, interrogation of the motives underlying socialists. And perhaps even socialism to a degree, although I, I think you're right to, to make the distinction between uh, socialism as a force and then the particular psychology of, of the socialist. So your your point is that, you know, one becomes a socialist and not out of a, a desire for justice, but uh, out of a desire to be an owner or a possessor. And that those type of socialists, the socialists of the lion that you talk about, Nietzsche's point is, and of course, what is he? He's the great slayer of idols, isn't he? He's a great slayer of moral pieties. They have no cachet on moral superiority. I suppose to use a clumsy term in, the, in modern parlance, they are virtue signalers. They don't match their principles and their rhetoric with action, which of course is a great theme in Nietzsche, isn't it? The, the philosopher of doing, the philosopher of activity. Right, yeah. So they're not going to be transparent or honest about their motives. It's not necessarily that they're lying to other people and they know their motives so well, but then they're just telling a different story. It'd rather be that they don't know themselves, right? I mean, one of the great lines from Nietzsche's genealogy is, we are not knowers of ourselves. So, yeah, I mean, I, I don't think that he, he's necessarily accusing socialists of duplicity or of, you know, consciously, you know, having one set of motives, but then speaking as if they had another, 
Rather, it's just it's a general failure that uh, we all participate in to uh, know what actually makes us tick, what what actually drives our um, actions. That's part of it. And so, I mean, you, you could read some of those aphorisms and you could think, oh, okay, right. Nietzsche, very, very cynical about professions of justice and perhaps very cynical even about the idea of justice itself. But one of the very interesting discoveries that you make when you follow the chain of aphorisms that appears in uh, volume one of Human Alter Human so that you discover, actually, just when you think that he's going to give up on the ideal of justice, instead, he says, no, justice actually is a noble ideal, and it can be practiced. And so he says, for example, right. if, uh, if, if, the, if the people who have more possessions, the noble, if they were to make a sacrifice and give away some of their possessions so that others could also enjoy the bounty, well, then, yes, that would be an act of justice. <laughs> so, so, so he's actually not nearly as, I mean, he's not simply, you know, a, a sort of easy cynic about justice. One of my favorite um, places is in a human all to human 452, uh, which he concludes by, by saying, I'll, I'll, I'll just read the single sentence here. Go ahead. What is necessary is not the forcible redistribution of property, but instead the gradual transformation of sensibility. The sense of justice must become greater in everyone and the instinct for violence weaker. So there's something that you wouldn't necessarily... Yeah, right. Sorry to cut across you, Robert, but I agree completely. Nietzsche is the great hater of the victim or those who... Uh, well, maybe not necessarily hates victims, I don't think, Nietzsche, but he, I think he probably certainly hates people who, who turn suffering and victimhood into a source of moral piety or moral superiority. Right. No, he doesn't care for that. But, but but coexisting with that is, at least in um, Human All to Human 452, right. is a genuine care for the uh, gradual transformation of sensibility so that we actually care about justice and, and we substitute an instinct for violence with some kind of genuine care for justice. So he says that instead of the forcible transformation of property where you're just thinking in terms of class warfare – wouldn't it be better if somehow we, we could um, all um, uh, grow into a deeper sense of justice and th- then then we might be able to actually get something done? So, yeah, it's not about virtue signaling yeah. and, and it's nor is it about sort of violent um, seizure or appropriation of property. Things which he's often accused of. Right. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. But but but, but there is. So 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 it's really I mean, what's coexisting here in Nietzsche is both a uh, deep and thoroughgoing suspicion of a kind of rhetoric about justice where people, you know, dress up their uh, programs uh, in the Ah. language of justice with, I would say, a a care for actual justice as opposed to uh, drastic or violent measures. One thing that makes Nietzsche complicated here, so yet you get the suspicion of the rhetoric of justice and sort of the the self-attribution of grand motives on the part of the socialist. And and that, that sort of, that conforms to our sort of usual expectations about Nietzsche. Uh, but but what doesn't conform to that is when suddenly in uh, you know, 452 here, he says, no, no, actually a, a growth in the actual sensibility um, would be a good thing. I mean, very much like what is a, you know, Lutheran uh, country parson father might've called a, a conversion of hearts, right? <laughs> I mean, I actually think this makes sense. I mean, yeah, I think what we need are not 
for we don't need the um, sort of agitated promotion of particular violent measures that will forcibly, you know, tr transfer wealth. Rather, what we need is a conversion of hearts on the part of everybody, so so that we might actually uh, live more humanely. Because I mean, Nietzsche is for a certain kind of uh, humanity, right? <laughs> I mean, he he's not, and so. Um, yeah, I, mean, I, I guess that's the first point I'd make, just, just about the sheer complexity regarding his uh, thinking about justice and the difference between the rhetoric of justice as espoused by sort of partisan fanatics versus, you know, a, a deeper reality, which at least at this point in his authorship, Nietzsche still has time for. Case then that that wanes towards the latter Nietzsche, you know, the Nietzsche of the will to power, the later notebooks. Um, the, the, the image of Nietzsche that we get, you know, from books like The Will to Power, which isn't even really a book, right? It's a non-book. It's a collection of fragments from his uh, Naklas, his yeah. unpublished writing that uh, his sister, you know, compiles. Yeah. So, you know, I mean, I I, I think that's a, that's a subtle and difficult question. I mean, I mean what, what is true is that, I mean, there's kind of subtle sort of back and forth um, reflection about something like socialism uh, with its uh, pros and cons. Yeah, you don't find as much of that in the later writings. I mean, so yeah, I mean, if you want this sort of complicated, subtle reflection on this particular topic, I, I do think the middle writings are, are more fertile. But I'm not entirely convinced that he simply abandons um, his his uh, more complicated picture in the late, later writings. It's very complicated given to his declining ill health as well. Yes, 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 it, it, it is. But, but but the other point I was going to make, because I, I guess, I mean, the, the, the first big point is just about uh, yeah, the complexity of his thinking about um, justice. But then um, the, the other point that I would make is, um, yeah, he he criticizes um, socialists for yeah, a kind of virtue signaling, a, a kind of uh, uh, attribution of grand motives to themselves. But he's equally critical, perhaps even more critical, of the people that he calls the uh, wealthy bourgeois, right? Right, the the, the people who make um, the acquisition of property um, into sort of the highest good of human life. He he is no less critical of that type than he is of the uh, socialist who might be a little deluded about his own motives. And I, I think that's a dimension. Um, worth bringing into the conversation as well. In your article that, that sort of precipitated this conversation, one of the interesting things that you pick up on is Nietzsche's critique of the property-minded, which I think is a very evocative way of putting it, because I hear property not just in the thing, sense of, you know, land. I also hear it in the philosophical sense of, uh, in terms of, uh, you know, properties, you know, like John Locke or David Hume talked about, you know, the properties of the object and so on. And he, he sometimes he does a lie between those two things. But as far as I can see it, there's, well, I suppose I'm going to give you two questions and you can answer them whichever way you like, Robert. What exactly does he mean by this critique of the property-minded? And to what degree is that critique of the property-minded wrapped up in a critique of liberal bourgeois democracy or, or you know, that sort of middle-class of it, which is something, the reason I asked you, that's something that he would overlap with a Marxist. Yeah, no, no, that's true. Yeah. So, um, yeah, so to, to, take, to take the first question, yeah, uh, what, the, what does he mean by the, uh, the property minded? Um, yeah, I mean, I, I think what he means is, is the kind of person who really associates and identifies his well being with the uh, acquisition 
and the maintaining of possessions. All of, all of that person's energy is bent toward the goal of acquiring things so that uh, you are your things and you don't know who you would be without uh, your ability to acquire and maintain possessions. So, so that becomes a kind of identity, as we might say today, right? Uh, and so this is exactly uh, what Nietzsche um, says about the uh, so-called um, uh, wealthy uh, bourgeois. Yeah, I mean, he, he says, uh, yeah, you wealthy bourgeois who call yourselves liberal, admit to yourselves that it is the desires of your own heart that you find so fearful and threatening in the socialist, right? So the, the underlying thought there is that, yeah, you, I mean, if, if socialists uh, are motivated by a kind of underlying greed or avarice because they want their possessions, sure. well, the property minded are no less avaricious. That they, they too are greedy and, and they are terrified that they are going to lose what they have. And what is it that would account for such fear? Why, why would they be so afraid? Well, it's because they've wrapped up their very being, their very identity, with a conception of themselves that uh, has and maintains an enormous amount of wealth. Yeah. And uh, I mean, that, that's a side of Nietzsche yeah, that you don't always see represented, but it's right there in um, its assorted opinions and maxims, uh, aphorism 304. Yeah. He says, if, as you are now, you did not have your property and your worries about preserving it, then these desires of yours would make of you socialist. Possession of property is the only thing that distinguishes you from them, <laughs> right? So, yeah, I mean, that, that's a great sentiment because so often, right, people who are in sort of different partisan camps think, oh, I am completely different from my opposite number. Whereas Nietzsche says, oh, no, often partisans actually have a lot in common, even though they define themselves by way of opposition to the other side. So, so in this particular case, yeah, the, the uh, wealthy bourgeois and the <laughs> right. um, socialist both have in common an underlying desire for stuff. And, and why is that? Well, it's because, it's because they have um, explicitly or unexplicitly identified the ultimate good for a human being as consisting in a kind of comfort. That very much chimes with a certain type of Marxism, I think. I mean, a vulgar Marxism would, would say that Communism is about nobody owning everything. Everybody owns everything. There's no property that you you know you can't you can't have nice things. You can't have you can't have a house. You can't have clothes, and everyone goes around like uh, like Franciscans basically. Yeah, I, and I I don't think that's actually what Marx would himself would actually argue. But I suppose that's a different debate. I suppose what what interests me about what you're saying is that is it that they will become property minded just have either through habit or a sense of unthinking become very, very impoverished in their sensibility. That's in part of that word sensibility, their embodiment becomes very much confined and channeled down very narrow, a very narrow understanding of themselves to such a degree that these folk, these property-minded folk, take the property to be the end rather than the means. Yes, yeah, yeah, that's a very good way of putting it. Yeah, I mean, yeah, in that same aphorism that I was just quoting, he, he says, if only this wealth and comfort were true well-being. <laughs> yeah, so that, I mean, that, that's just what you might think of as the eudaimonist side of Nietzsche. The, the side of Nietzsche that thinks, look, that there is such a thing as true well-being. And uh, yeah, if only it were as easy as uh, being comfortable or having um, a lot of money. 
Yeah, but but th- those are not, yeah, at best, th- those are instrumental. There's a means to the end. They are not the end itself. So the end is true well-being. Uh, then, yeah, the, the question is, um, how, how or, or how is it that both um, socialist and their ostensible antagonist, the, the, the wealthy bourgeois, yeah, but how, how do both of those converge in, in harboring sort of the, the same set of uh, desires? And both of them, uh, in effect, miss what it would be to... Um, enjoy true well-being. Sure. Now, I, I don't want to insinuate that Nietzsche thinks there's a single idea of true well-being that is the same for everybody. No, no, certainly not that. I mean, Nietzsche does insist on sort of diversity and individuality, and he's, he's not going to uh, suppose that, uh, yeah, there are a single set of conditions that, if satisfied, would result in, you know, what he's calling uh, well-being. But but he does mm-hmm. think that, uh, yeah, the socialist and the, and the bourgeois have in common the, the tendency to identify well-being with uh, wealth and comfort. And uh, that, that I just think that by itself is is interesting. I mean, as I said earlier, the, the idea that uh, ostensibly opposed uh, party members actually have the same underla- underlying set of, des- of desires that drives them. I mean, that by itself, I think, is an interesting thought that has all sorts of implications, even for our current debates. Absolutely. I mean, one of the things that Nietzsche dislikes and I'm picking this up from your article, Robert, is he does not like, well, he doesn't like parties, I don't think, or he doesn't like factionalism as well. <laughs> a favorite hobby horse of the left, if, in my experience, at yeah. least. Yeah, no, no, he, he's he's resolutely opposed to factions. And uh, he, he thinks there's uh, something wrong with people whose identity is bound up with being a uh, member of a faction. Yeah. And so he's always wanting to uh, poke fun at that. And then, I mean, yeah, sometimes he'll poke fun at it. And then other times he'll just oppose it. Yeah, using sort of the language of a traditional moralist. Yeah, I mean, uh, he'll he'll use all sorts of strategies, but uh, yeah, I, I, I think I think this is a feature that you find not only in the middle period writings, but also very much in the later writings. Yeah, a kind of resolute opposition to the human all too human tendency to uh, gain one's identity from club yeah. joining. One other thing I wanted to ask you about the question of property, because I don't think it's the case that he says don't own stuff or don't have property but you kind of need to do it in the right way and this is something that you point out in the essay and i think i'm quoting you here only someone who is spirit should possess property otherwise property is dangerous to the common good so the implication there being i think robert that those who are property minded then well lack spirit in yes, some way yes 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 yeah no no I, I think you were channeling the very beginning of aphorism 310 from the assorted opinions and maxims, yeah, yep. which is titled uh, "Danger and Riches," yeah, yeah. But part of what I like about that one is, yeah, he's, he suggests that the uh, that the lust for riches is itself a kind of ersatz spirit. It's really a form of spiritlessness. It, it's a it's a substitute or a surrogate for spirit. Right. So the, the person who has true spiritedness um, is going to be animated and motivated by things uh, that have very little to do with the accumulation of riches for the sake of riches. So then, yeah, what is it that accounts for people um, sort of centering their existence on the desire to acquire um, wealth? Yeah, it's a kind of spiritlessness. I was just going to add, it it also resonates with me in an Aristotelian sense, that eudaimonianism that you talked about, because Aristotle draws a distinction between, how does he put it again, between sort of instrumental goods and uh, goods that are in themselves. And, you know, he's he's not saying that instrumental goods are not helpful. You know, it's like 
Yeah, really helpful. Yeah, yeah. In, in fact, almost essential to such a degree, you know, because you know you you can't you can't you can't live well. You can't flourish without I don't know food, shelter, sustenance, companionship, friendship, all of those things. And that very much, to my mind, chimes with what Nietzsche is about as well. And you talk about that as well. In other elsewhere, you talk about Nietzsche's uh, being one of the great writers of friendship. I think as well, don't yeah, you? Yeah, not? yeah, no, um, that, that, that's right. So yeah, so, but just the, the very idea that uh, the uh, insatiable desire for riches is a form of spiritlessness and a kind of compensation for an underlying boredom. Yeah, I mean that that, that too is a note that he sounds in that same aphorism. Yeah, he said that there, these riches are in fact the glittering product of spiritual dependence and poverty. Yeah, so again, that, that me, yeah, that's something that you might, you know, think, oh yeah, Mother Teresa, right, uh, said that, right, that uh, uh, so many people in the West right. are you know, economically wealthy, but spiritually uh, impoverished, you know, and so there's a real sense in which uh, Westerners are far poorer than, you know, the, the, the poor people in India. And, but yeah, I mean, but something like that thought is expressed, at least in this particular aphorism of Nietzsche, that, uh, yeah, the desire for riches is a manifestation of an underlying spiritual poverty because you, you're not sure what to do with your existence. And so, well, okay, yeah, the, the striving for wealth and accumulation, ah, okay, that, that, that's something I can do to stave off the boredom and the sort of sense of, I mean, meaninglessness that I, I would otherwise have. And, and I guess I, I do find that, you know, there's something importantly true about that. But but at the same time, yeah, what, what you're saying is also, right, and that uh, yeah, Nietzsche doesn't say, ah, that therefore, um, you know, one should never, you know, strive to acquire anything. He, he just says that yeah, this is something that, that needs to be put in a proper um, framework. It, it needs to be relativized. It, it needs to um, not be sort of the, the center of existence, but, but rather um, subordinate to um, other uh, more genuinely noble goals. Does does that mean then, Robert, that in Nietzsche there is a sustained critique of wealth, material prosperity? Or is it the Aristotelian case again where he talks about, well, what's, what's Arist- Aristotle's supreme enabling virtue is, I suppose, well, courage, I suppose, but it's also the activity of moderation. Is, is there a critique of, 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 of excessive wealth, perhaps, then in Nietzsche? Well, yes. I, I, yeah, I think there, there are two points here that, that I think are related but distinct. Yeah. And so, so the, the first point is that what, yeah, what could be thought of as a critique of property, I, I would say, is, is, is really more a critique of a sort of addiction to property accumulation because you think that will provide meaning and comfort, right? So, so I, I would say that ultimately, uh, at least a, a, a substantial part of the critique of property would get resolved into a deeper critique of uh, the idea that, uh, that the, the sense and meaning of our lives is to be comfortable, right? So the, this, in fact, is a central point of connection between the so-called middle period writings and then uh, what he's doing in um, Zaratustra, right? Um, Zaratustra is the work uh, where yeah, people say, ah, yeah, that's where Nietzsche makes the tra- transition from, you know, the so-called uh, mid- middle period free spirit works to, you know, whatever he's doing in Zaratustra. <laughs> Continuity there is our, Zaratustra it, it criticizes, you know, the, the last man who thinks he has discovered happiness and blinks. And what is the happiness of the last man? Well, it's just this addiction to being comfortable, being secure, not being challenged or having to be bothered by much of anything. And so I, I do think that's an important point of continuity between uh, what he's doing in Human All to Human uh, and then um, to, you know, gay science and um, 
Zarathustra. So yeah, so I guess I'm saying uh, so one aspect of this is the critique of property is really a critique for the underlying identification of the good of uh, human life with the desire to be comfortable. But but then there is another sort of dimension of the uh, critique of property, which uh, I think maybe you were touching on it, Patrick. But uh, to bring it um, to to make it a little more explicit, I think Nietzsche does have the sense that if the inequalities in um, any given society become too um, pronounced, that uh, it's it's actually dangerous for the survival of society itself. Yeah, there's something inherently um, destabilizing about a situation where a very, very small number of people um, have, you know, 90% of, of, of the resources. And that's not a situation that can um, uh, persist uh, but, but for a certain time, and because, because people are going to get fed up, they're going to feel despair, they're going to feel a sense of hopelessness, a, a sense that uh, the system is permanently rigged, and no matter how hard they work, you know, they're never going to have anything. And, and, and Nietzsche is aware that uh, that is not a healthy situation. And so I think that's what accounts for the, the somewhat surprising calls for certain I would say socialist measures to uh, uh, engage in uh, redistributions of wealth. Right. It doesn't get more socialist than that. So you, you, your thought is then that Nietzsche recommends, has like, it's, a, it's, a, it's a positive policy that we should redistribute the wealth or we should, it's, we are morally obliged to reduce stark inequality in a society if, it's, if that level of inequality presents an existential threat to said society. Yeah, yeah. And I would say maybe it's not even so much of a moral imperative as a pragmatic imperative, right? Mm-hmm. I, I mean, I mean, if we yeah, want society to continue, but if, uh, if we're living in a system where um, a very, very small number of people are able to uh, grab um, most of the resources and leaving everybody out, else out in the cold, well, then that, that is a danger to society. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and uh, so he's he's pretty explicit um, on that point. Yeah, and so I, I think in the article I quote the very end of uh, the Wanderer in a Shadow aphorism two hundred and eighty five. Yeah, where he actually says uh, we must keep open all the path we must keep open all the paths to the accumulation of moderate wealth through work, but prevent the sudden or unearned acquisition of riches. Yeah, I mean that's interesting. So, so yeah, the, the moderate acquisition of wealth is is uh, fine. We we should keep that open. We shouldn't try to you know legislate that out of existence as if wealth were automatically bad. No, not at all. A moderate amount of wealth uh, that is created through application and diligence and uh, effort is 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 perfectly reasonable, and uh, we we should not be in a rush to uh, try to outlaw that. But. After a certain point, yeah, it, it just uh, the, the inequalities become too destabilizing. And I suppose that's so where where he would separate from, uh, I guess, uh, uh, a Marxist reading because what he's suggesting there is that, and so it's it's kind of a he's, he's kind of, he seems to be recommending a type of crisis socialism that it's something that we should only turn to. Perhaps yeah, I when, think that's a good way of putting it, right? I mean, that takes us back to his original idea in Human All to Human in the first volume. That it, it's like a force of nature, right? It's like a steam engine. It's something uh, that can be absolutely explosive in its effects. And if it's not used judiciously, right? I mean, if it's applied indiscriminately, well, then, yeah, I mean, the, the whole thing can blow up and it, it, it could be um, something that's quite undesirable. But 
if uh, we have the sort of prudence to identify the circumstances in which the inequalities have simply become too much to bear for any society that wants to persist for any length of time, well, then, yeah, perhaps, uh, yeah, there, there is a use for it. And so, yeah, I mean, he sort of, he um, adumbrates that possibility in um, the first volume of Human All to Human. But then when he gets around to uh, writing uh, The Wanderer and His Shadow, right, the, the second volume, yeah, he actually concludes that um, uh, 285 uh, by saying, uh, yeah, we must remove from the hands of private individuals and companies all those branches of trade and transportation favorable to the accumulation of great <laughs> wealth, thus especially the trade in money. So, yeah, he's coming for you, Elon Musk. Club. He's coming for Elon Musk and Bill Gates. Yeah, 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 and Jeff Bezos. Yeah, don't forget him too. Yeah, right. Yeah, I mean, of course, how could I? Have, yeah, I mean, I mean, there's something absurd about it. And he says, yeah, those who possess too much are as great a danger to society as those who possess nothing. Yeah. So when you have this extreme gap between uh, those who possess a little or nothing and then those who possess so much. You just, it's not reasonable to expect society to uh, continue for too long when it's constituted by such gross inequality. So, yeah, so he's expressly recommending certain policies, which, yeah, I mean, I think the fair-minded reader would say, yep, those are socialist policies. And yes, here Nietzsche is recommending those. But again, that does not make him an advocate for socialism in general. It doesn't make him opposed to the accumulation of moderate wealth. Although I would say, I mean, even moderate wealth, it has to be, you've got to be careful with it. I mean, if you make that into the goal of your life, well, then you'd say, ah, you, you've, you've become an instance of the last man. You, you, you've, you've forgotten that there are nobler and higher things worth striving for. So, yeah, so, so wealth, I mean, yeah, both lack of wealth and wealth present dangers to the person who wants to live the kind of life that at least Nietzsche regards as admirable. It's, a, it's also one of the things that, what you're saying also, I think, reminds me of some of the material in the early Nietzsche, actually. I'm thinking here of, oh, where is it? I'm going to say the Untimely Meditations and where Nietzsche talks about education and Schopenhauer's educator and Doza says, and he's talking, he's very critical of, in the, there at least, he's, he's, I think it's sort of Bismarcky in Germany, he's very critical of on all these kind of developments of the welfare state and the things like development of imparted innovations of the welfare state, actually things like state pensions and the like. And, you know, but what type of person does that create is what is interest. What type of person, what type of media does that person pursue? And for Nietzsche, even in that early work, he's talking about, it's a version of the last man. He's talking about like, what he calls, was it homo economicus? The human who is only the economic human, who only understands himself purely in transactional economic terms. Yes, yeah, there's something impoverished about the type who can only understand himself uh, transactionally. Yeah, and uh, no, I, I love the fact that you've, you've taken us back to uh, you know, the third and timely meditation, Schopenhauer's educator. Yeah, that, that's one of my, that's probably my favorite piece of writing. By great piece, show. yeah, great, yeah. Actually, yeah, I mean, it's the piece uh, that I um, use to introduce my students uh, to Nietzsche when I teach Nietzsche. Me too, and, as uh, it happens. Yeah, yeah, no, no, it's great. Yeah, and, and it's actually the the piece. Uh, I, I actually um, say this in the introduction to my book on the gay science um, that made the Schopenhauer's educator is the piece that Nietzsche kept copies of, and he would actually give to people that he met, and he would in effect say, oh, "Okay, if, if you want to know me, here is a good place to start." And if uh, you read this and you find that nothing in it resonates with you, then you probably don't want to have anything to do with me <laughs> or my writings. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, no, so I, yeah, I, I think, yeah, you know, as ever. 
Yeah, yeah. So yeah, section six, that the fourfold critique of yeah the the, the, the greed of the state, the greed of the money makers, uh, problems with the universities, and uh, the the greed of scholars. Yeah, then that disjunction between sort of a beautiful form and then ugly um, content. Yeah, I mean, yeah, I, I think all of that is very continuous with, uh, yeah, the, the critique of property mindedness mm-hmm. in the middle period of works and, and then the critique of uh, the last man and his sort of lack of um, aspiration you know, that you find in Zarathustra and after. So I, I do think there's a thread that you, that you could trace that you would have variations uh, of, of this theme in all of the so-called um, three periods. Yeah. Yes. Yes. Uh, a question I want to follow up with on that is, I mean, do you think, I mean, you've written on this elsewhere, you've written on Nietzsche and the self and things like that, but I'm wondering in Nietzsche, is there a critique of individualism or maybe more accurately, is there a critique of liberal individualism or liberalism, you know, the liberalism of those people he's talking about in Schopenhauer's Educator? You're just talking about sort of that utilitarian Benthamite notion of, um, you know, rational self-maximizers or whatever, you know? Yes. Yeah, yeah I think it's complicated um, because, I mean, if you're thinking that liberalism means a somewhat uh, minimalist conception of the state, where the function of the state is to ensure the uh, security of its um, citizens. Well, then, yeah, there's this, I mean, Nietzsche actually attributes that conception of the state to uh, Schopenhauer, and at least uh, in that untimely meditation, he, he endorses, he seems to endorse that. He seems to be favorably predisposed to a kind of minimalist uh, conception of the state. Yeah, he's critical of institutions as a rule as well, isn't he? Oh, v- v- very much so, right. And so, but yeah, he, he's critical of institutions, and he's critical of, I would say the maximalist state, uh, but he's all, but he's not an anarchist. Yeah, I mean, this is one of the mistakes that H.L. Mencken, uh, you know, who wrote a biography of Nietzsche uh, quite early and then translated, uh, I think he did the first English translation of uh, Der Antichrist. Yeah, um, Mencken wanted to attribute his own anarchism to Nietzsche, but Nietzsche's not an anarchist. He does recognize uh, sort of the, the need for the state, at least to do, you know, protect its citizens uh, from you know, dangers, um, foreign and domestic. So in that way, you could argue, ah, yes, Nietzsche is something of a liberal. <laughs> but if uh, you sort of uh, make the transition from, you know, a, a political idea of the minimal state designed to, to uh, protect um, its citizens, if you make the transition from that to a, a moral conception where you, you think, ah, look, you know, that there is no... Um, um, yeah, well, a libertarian or beings, except for security and comfort. <laughs> yeah, it, it, yeah. I mean, if, if you do that, well, then of course Nietzsche would not uh, qualify as a uh, liberal in that sense. So I, I don't know. Yeah, I mean, I, 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 the more you think about Nietzsche, the, the more um, interesting he gets on this kind of topic. I mean, you can find strands associated with liberalism in his thinking, but obviously, then he um, his. In egalitarianism, his insistent uh, that there will always be hierarchies, there will always be rank orderings, and uh, that uh, most uh, measures uh, to um, produce uh, equality are misguided. Yeah, I mean, th- th- those seem to make him anti-liberal. And also, I suppose, his critique of nihilism. What's not, Yeah, I mean, I, I, well, I wanted to talk about some of his more... Sort of to sort of step back from the weeds a little bit and talk about his more sort of more famous concepts and of course one of them is his critique of nihilism and of course what's the as you say what's one of the chief 
avatars of nihilism. It's the last man. It's the person who's actually ignorant in their bliss, basically. You know, they're sort of luxuriate in in pleasure and all of their needs are met because when all your needs are met, you've got nothing to challenge you and therefore you become well, you become dead. You become inhuman. And self-satisfied and all of those things that, uh, yeah, I mean, right. it really does right. like arouse people from their comfortable slumbers, you might say. And, uh, yeah, encourage them to uh, aim for the realization of their higher selves, which is uh, yet unknown to them. Yeah, I mean, Nietzsche does uh, have this idea that uh, one must uh, strive to become who one is. Uh, and that doesn't involve sort of already knowing who you're supposed to be and then doing that, but rather I mean, there, doing there is it. a constant need for self-overcoming. Yeah. Right? That's one of his favorite terms, self-overcoming and uh, challenging oneself to, to reach new heights uh, that uh, you might not even be able to uh, explicitly conceive in your present condition. But uh, nonetheless, uh, th- that is what uh, you will aim for if you can overcome the kind of lethargy and spiritual laziness and fear that uh, right characterizes uh, so many of us. <laughs> Democratic security, perhaps. Uh, I, I mean, that's, that's one of the other things that, yeah, we should think about is, you know, we might get a chance to talk about that before the end. Uh, what you know, uh, you know, he's he's not a democratic socialist. I don't think. I don't think you could call it that. If, uh, and I think you said this. You said this in the in the, in the article. Like, if it's if if in an American context, democratic socialist is an actual party, right? Yeah. And again, I mean, he wants to challenge all those factionalisms, and he wants to undermine the idea that they simply stand for justice, and their opponents have no regard for justice at all. I mean, he does want to undermine, you know, that kind of sloganeering tendency. And so, yeah, so I, I, I don't, yeah, I hope the effect of my article wasn't to convince people that, oh, yes, if you read Nietzsche carefully, you'll find he is, in fact, a democratic socialist. I don't think that's the case. No, you, in fact, you say it explicitly. I yeah. think that the socialism yeah. is a potent force, which in certain circumstances can and should be used when the inequalities become just so gross that they must be mitigated, because uh, otherwise uh, the fabric of society will simply unravel. And in fact, you won't even have a society. You, you'll have two different societies that are perpetually at war with one another, which uh, may, may be the condition that we're currently in. Here we all are. So, yeah. <laughs> So, so I do think Nietzsche, he, he's a prescient um, sort of observer and anticipator of uh, the forces that uh, threaten yeah, any kind of uh, social cohesion. But uh, he does not think that the answer to that is therefore some maximalist form of the state. I mean, you, you, I, I wouldn't want to forget, you know, what he's what, what Zadatuser says about the state being, you know, the, the new idol, right? The, the kind of substitute for uh, the position that had formerly been uh, occupied well, by the church. Well, I meant to right? ask. The in terms of sort of Nietzsche's you know most famous concept, or, you know the concept that you'll see on Facebook groups and people talk about uh, who, who know nothing about philosophy or Nietzsche as God is dead, and I thought in terms of our discussion, in terms of teasing out the political resonance of that, well, it's very complicated. Obviously, uh, I take it to be as much as a critique of theology is a critique of political theology as well. I take the God is dead from the gay science idea to be about, well, it's a, at first I take it to be sort of a literary lamentation. It's a sort of a mourning for the loss of this absence that we we can't understand. And we, 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 we've, we've lost this sort of foundation in our lives and we haven't really come to terms with that yet. I would add to that, though, that I... I do, I do, I probably very, a lot of people, I do take it to be quite an atheistic thing. I know, you know, it's like, 
you know, depending on what you mean by God, but God as a horizon of intelligibility is no longer with us. We can't understand things that way anymore. So what do we do? We come up with idols. We try to fill that gap. We try to fill that vacuum with the idols you've just been talking about. And I'm wondering, what are your thoughts, especially apropos of socialism, in, in terms of like, you know, I mean, you would have to say, wouldn't you, that Nietzsche would, uh, you know, he would, we replace, do we replace God with politics? Robert, that's my question. Right, uh, I mean, yeah, there are so many things that uh, fill the space formerly occupied by God. Yeah, and uh, I mean, politics would be one of them. Uh, wealth, right, would be one of them, right? Uh, and in fact, I mean... The, Socialism? The, yeah, yeah, social, yeah. I mean, I mean a, a, any worldly thing can be made into an idol. So, yeah, there's a sense in which I think Nietzsche's sort of employment of the language of idolatry is actually quite continuous with uh, certain strands of... Uh, Judaic and Christian uh, tradition on this point, uh, yeah. That uh, I mean, if if you uh, oh. if you um, reject God, well, then the tendency will be to put something in the place of God as that which um, uh, centers your life and uh, is is what you strive for. And so, uh, so yeah, I mean, Nietzsche is both a uh, critic of. Um, the, the traditional um, Christian religion. I mean, that's true, and I don't want to soft pedal or minimize that. But at the same time, it, the, the secular substitutes or surrogates for God right. in, in so many ways have been even worse from uh, Nietzsche's perspective, and uh, especially in human alter human. I mean, Nietzsche sees just how much is lost by what he regards as the uh, permanent eclipse of the older European culture, which uh, did have uh, some uh, substantive notion of God at its center. Yeah, so, I mean, in certain moods, Nietzsche will celebrate uh, the eclipse of God, and he'll say, ah, now we have an open sea, we free spirits can uh, sort of, you know, voyage again, and we don't have to be afraid of anything. And, yeah, I mean, he could sound that uh, note, but he also sounds the notes of an impending sort of terror and utter collapse of meaning and a coming of uh, nihilism. And so, yeah, I mean, I think what I find so fascinating about Nietzsche is he's able to sound the uh, sort of both of those notes um, at the same time. What would Nietzsche say then, do you think, Robert, to how we sort of warred against, uh, you know, those those more secular forms of theism or, you know, those secular forms of providence? What is it that would, that would stop or mitigate socialism from becoming a secular theology? I suppose the answer is his philosophy, but what moral armature does he suggest can help us to do socialism in a productive, healthy way. That I mean, makes sense. Yeah, it's it's very easy to oversimplify Nietzsche on these points. Uh, I'm afraid anything I will say will have precisely that effect. But uh, I mean, certainly, I think Nietzsche thinks we suffer from a tendency to put uh, new new ideals or new idols. Right? Nietzsche loves to sort of make wordplay on uh, ideal and idol. Right? So we we tend to plug in new ideals, new idols to fill the space uh, that was uh, left by the uh, collapse of the older framework. But uh, most of these are associated with what Nietzsche rather scornfully calls modern ideas. Yeah, I mean, that's kind of a leitmotif in uh, the, the later Nietzsche. He, he always uses the phrase modern ideas in scare quotes. <laughs> and, uh, I mean, he's, he's very ironic about them. So yeah, indeed, I mean, socialism, just as taken as a generic idea itself would be, would be a modern idea in one sense, uh, to, to which he is opposed. Um, so, so is uh, egalitarianism, so, so, so are any number of things. But uh, I mean, I do think that Nietzsche thinks if we can somehow identify these idols and uh, discern the hold that they tend to have on so many of us, 
then we might be able to find our way to something new, something uncharted, something that isn't um, easily reducible to a political program or a formula for for living. And uh, this is going to have to do with um, our individuality, with, with who, who we are. And it's not going to be something that can uh, just be discovered and universally uh, applied to everybody uh, as a formula. So, yeah, I know that's awfully vague, but I'm not sure that Nietzsche has uh, positive prescriptions that can be readily universal. In fact, I'm, pre- I'm pretty sure he doesn't. He doesn't have positive prescriptions that, that, that can be uh, universalized easily. It's more a way of becoming untimely, of identifying the uh, sort of current assumptions that, that we tend to um, make idols of, consciously or unconsciously. And then if we can clear that away, well, then we might begin a more dare I say, authentic, <laughs> if I can use that word, authentic uh, motion toward our true selves. And I, I think that's at least part of uh, what he's driving at in, in a book like the, the... It's an odd mix. It's an odd mix, I find, Robert, because in one sense, I mean, this is his critique of socialists, let's say, n- not necessarily socialism as a force, as you say, is his critique of, he's critiquing naivety on the one hand, you know, the and that's a common critic of socialism. You know, it's like, great idea, won't work in practice. You know, how many socialists have heard that in their lives, you know? And he's also, at the same time, yeah, and at the same time, he's also, in addition to that, he's not a utopian, I don't think. I don't think you can make, he's, you know, he's not that... He's not offering those that type of political therapy. Well, I think he's explicitly anti-utopian. Yeah, I mean, he accuses Plato of a kind of utopianism. Yeah, yeah right. yes, Honestly, yes, of course, yeah. of course, absolutely, yeah. <laughs> Yet in Zarathustra, he's asking us, he's telling us to celebrate uh, innocence, the idea of becoming, uh, the idea of play. That's what the Ubermitch is, isn't it? I suppose <laughs> it just comes to me, like you know, that's what the Ubermitch is. It's a, it's the playful human, you know, the human who's not overly solemn, who's not excessively pious, and oddly, the human who doesn't look down on others. <laughs> I think. Yeah, yeah, no, I think that's right. Yeah, I mean, present day humanity. Uh, from Nietzsche's perspective, is unlikely to survive. It's just it, it's character. It's, it's constituted by so many forces that are in tension with one another. It's an increasingly unstable compound. Yeah, it's a uh, it, it's frivolous where it should be serious, and it's uh, serious and solemn where it should be playful and light. Yeah, so I, I do think that uh, yeah, for, for Nietzsche, present day humanity as the successor of the older culture is, is in a way on a downward spiral. But, um, yeah, against that picture, Nietzsche holds out hope for a uh, new humanity, which is, I think, uh, symbolized in, in the type of the Ubermensch. Yeah, it's, it's going to be a surpassing of our current humanity uh, for the sake of something better. But yeah, exactly what that looks like or what a consistent, yeah, I mean, there, there's still questions that uh, people were thinking about today. And I mean, you think we use Nietzsche as a resource to help us think about those questions. But uh yeah, I mean, as much as I love reading Nietzsche, I, I don't think he you know, necessarily has all of the answers to the question of what a future um, humanity is going to look like. Yeah, I agree. Yeah, he explicitly doesn't. I think it would be to miss the point rather, wouldn't it? And, you know, which goes back to your your point at the beginning of this discussion that he is uh, constantly uh, undermining and <laughs> complicating matters. The, I suppose to try and draw things to a close, um, you know, you've also written about 
you've written about a lot of philosophers. You've written about uh, Nietzsche, Heidegger, Strauss, uh, and you've also got a, a relatively recent book. I think it was 2017 that came out on uh, Montaigne. Uh, the, the, the unusual tribute that, that he pays to uh, Montaigne in uh, Section 2 of Schopenhauer's Educator. He says that of all the writers I can think of, the most honest and the one who gives me the most joy reading is Montaigne. And again, that was that too was something that most people have written on Nietzsche have completely ignored. Mm. Yeah, they, they they pretended that uh, the Nietzsche Montaigne relation isn't very interesting or very important. And but uh, when you when you start looking at the topic, you find no, there there's so many places in early, middle, and late Nietzsche where he's definitely uh, praising Montaigne, and he, he he pays him the highest compliments in so many ways. And so, yeah, that 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 that, that was the book that that, that I published. Uh, yeah, I guess it was. 2017. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it, I, I was very, very, very happy to uh, write that book because I, I thought it, it sounds it, like a lot of fun. <laughs> of Nietzsche, there really has been underappreciated. Yeah, I mean, I would actually put put that one um, up there yes. with uh, anything, and just in terms of uh, yeah, I mean, if you if you really want to understand the the deeper spirit of Nietzsche. Go ahead and read the essays of Montaigne because uh, that those will actually get you quite far into something that Nietzsche admired and uh, was willing to um, take on board as a kind of constant companion to his own thinking. So I suppose two great skeptics, really. Yeah, 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 exactly. Yeah, um, yeah. I mean, I mean, actually, the, the opening chapter of that book has a section called "Sort of a For and Against Skepticism" on the part of Nietzsche. Yeah, I mean, Nietzsche's relationship to skepticism is, is is quite subtle. I mean, at the end of the day, I don't think Nietzsche is simply full stop a skeptic. I mean, I think he is prepared to make certain affirmations, which uh, he think can withstand, you know, the test of uh, skepticism. I agree. But I would. Time, yeah, for what it's worth, I agree. There is a strong component of skepticism understood uh, correctly in, in Nietzsche's writing, and uh, I, I do think that's very um, important to understand. I do think it owes uh, something to his uh, reading of Montaigne. Now, you you live in the United States. I live in the United Kingdom. Um, do you, why do you think Nietzsche matters? Why should people read Nietzsche now? What do you think is why right right at this moment? No, well, well, look, I'll actually answer in terms that are very continuous with what we've been talking about all mm. along. We are seduced by factions. We love to be partisans of this or that cause. We we so often find our identity in terms of adherence to a particular sect or group. And um, that's not good for the quality of our thinking or our being, right? Because we, we, we tend to demonize people who are not uh, in our set. And we tend to um, uh, respect only those who are sort of within our own in-group. And I just, I, I do think this is a disease in um, American and possibly European society that is just getting worse. And uh, I really can't think of a better antidote to that particular malady than Nietzsche, yeah, I mean, if you want to read a thinker who will challenge any tendency you harbor within yourself to become attached to a particular party or faction or sect, well, then, yeah, Nietzsche's a, he's, he's a great guy to, to, to read for that. Um, I mean, uh, and a very important uh, concept for Nietzsche is that of the intellectual conscience of not just accepting things that um, are, are told um, to you or that seem persuasive, but rather having the courage to pose difficult questions and uh, not just to do that at a certain period in your life, but make it a part of your being, you know, really become somebody who cares about asking questions again and again. Um, I mean, I guess I, I do think that's such an important part of a 
uh, fully human existence. And uh, Nietzsche is great for uh, putting people in touch with uh, the intellectual conscience, not just as an abstraction, but but it is something that he himself displays over and over again in all of his text. So yeah, so I, I I would say read Nietzsche not because he's going to give you a comfortable set of doctrines that you can identify with and take on board, but rather read Nietzsche because he will help you become a more intellectually alive human being. That makes that's that's wonderful. Thank you, <laughs> beautifully put, uh, uh, Robert. Uh, 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 and I suppose I would add to that, that makes a lot of sense to me because what is what is factionalism? It's a form of naysaying, isn't it? It's saying, you know, yeah, you're, you're crap, you're crap, you're crap, you're crap, you're crap, that's crap, yes, crap, you know? And it's uh, it's uh, it's unhealthy. Right, it's unhealthy. They get a certain kind of energy from it, right? I mean, they, they get a sort of energy of, you know, being with their people and therefore being against other people. And I mean, I understand the the seduction of it. I mean, in fact, I think we're all capable of falling. Oh, into we're not it. immune to it. Absolutely, that's yeah, his point. Yeah, it? we're not immune to it, and I'm not immune to it. But uh, but 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 reading Nietzsche and just making him a yeah a constant sort of companion, uh, I, I think can, can do can do lots of good for people. But again, yeah, I would distinguish that from being some kind of doctrinal uh, Nietzschean, where you have certain you know theories that uh, you find in Nietzsche and uh, you. Are determined to sort of go to bat for the you know, then they're becoming another kind of factionalist. If there's any virtue then, Robert, that he would extol, it's is it would it be would it be courage rather than hypocrisy, perhaps? Because hypocrisy is the easy yeah, way out. The, the courage to, to to be who you are and to keep on looking for who you are and, and not to settle for easy answers. Yeah, I mean that does take courage. And I do think Nietzsche um, is an advocate of uh, that sort of courage. And I think his readings are indeed encouraging in that uh, literal sense of the term. And I, I the thing, Tumas, yeah. yeah, and I guess the other thing I would say too is, I mean, look, I'm, I mean, I, I do obviously love reading Nietzsche and reading Nietzsche's text, but I, I don't identify as a Nietzschean uh, per se. I love Nietzsche, but I love other figures in the history of philosophy too. I mean, I love Thomas Aquinas. I love Plato. I love Aristotle. I love Jean-Baptiste Vico. I love Blaise Pascal and Montaigne. And uh, Thomas Aquinas and Nietzsche, that's a, how do you reconcile those two, Robert? Oh, I have a long history of being a Nietzschean (laughs) Thomas. That that might be for another conversation. That's Caesar with the soul of Christ, Nietzsche and St. Thomas. Yeah, yeah, no, no, no. I I have, uh, I mean, when I'm not reading Nietzsche, I'm usually reading Thomas Aquinas. But no, I, I, I mean, I'm reading lots of people but 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 Nietzsche actually for, for me he he helps facilitate my um, engagement with the history of philosophy because I guess Nietzsche himself is um, I mean he he he's, he's constantly reading older thinkers from the tradition and yeah it's not that he's reverential toward those thinkers but but he does regard them as uh, valuable. Um, sources for developing his own thinking, which I think is precisely the relationship that we should have to these figures in the history of philosophy. And in fact, in the, in the very last aphorism of The Wanderer in a Shadow, he says that there are four pairs of uh, uh, judges, uh, or rather, there, there, there are four pairs of figures that he would take as uh, um, his judges. And I think it's interesting to uh, name them. He says they're uh, Plato and Rousseau, um, Pascal and Schopenhauer, Spinoza and Goethe, Epicurus and Montaigne. Yeah, those are the four. Yeah, and so Nietzsche is he's engaged in a constant dialogue with uh, a range of uh, earlier figures. Um, so sometimes, yeah, he'll give you the impression, oh, yes, yeah, I, Nietzsche, have surpassed and I have overcome these uh, figures in the tradition and I can do my own thinking now. 
But that's not the only note he sounds. Uh, I mean, I, I don't think he violently breaks with the tradition, but rather I think he's engaged with it. And I, I guess that I, I find reading Nietzsche helpful from, from that point of view as well. Last question. If you were going to recommend somebody to read one of Nietzsche's books or secondary books uh, on Nietzsche, what would you do? And uh, you, you, um, you don't have to recommend your own. I will put the links to your your books in the show notes. Uh, so uh, you could record your own if you want. I don't mind. But uh, you know, you, like I mean, I'm I teach on a great books program. So okay, I'm very much a man. I mean, I, I tend to tell my students uh, spending just one minute with a primary text is usually worth uh, an hour on any secondary source. <laughs> so, yeah, so I mean, I would apply that to my own commentary on gay science as much as uh, anyone else's. Yeah, I mean, I say no. I mean, by all means, uh, I mean, there's no substitute simply for reading Nietzsche. And then if you get inspired after a certain point and, and you, you want to know, okay, well, what have other people made of these aphorisms that I'm reading in the gay science? Well, yeah, by all means, uh, go, go find a commentary. And hey, if you want to find my commentary, then that's great. Uh, I mean, I, I enjoyed writing it and uh i mean i i think there's some good in it but uh i i would always say no no first of all just just read, read the primary text for yourself try to think through it and then when, when you find that uh, you would like some additional input well then sure uh, check out some of the commentary because it, it, it can be enjoyable and and rewarding so yeah but, but but of the text of nietzsche yeah i mean i i do tend to tell people start with schopenhauer's educator I mean, he does describe that as the most personal of his essays. Great and essay, yeah, great essay. Guide to what's going. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you, you and I both uh, love that essay. So I tell people, start with Schopenhauer's educator, and then from there, you know, um, go wherever the spirit moves you. But uh, I guess I, I'm rather enamored with uh, the gay science as as the book that sort of most. Um, I don't know. Economically contains the the multiplicity of shapes and voices that that, that, that Nietzsche speaks in. And um, yeah, it's I mean, middle it, period it, as well, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, it's it's a great read. I mean, I I tend not to tell people to start with Zarathustra. Yeah, rather work your way up to Zarathustra. I actually do think that I mean that this is a debated question among Nietzsche scholars. You know, how much or how little value should be accorded to Zarathustra? You know, is it properly a work of philosophy or not? It, yeah, it seems so literary. It seems so. Basic. I mean, there there are a lot of philosophers who sort of don't know what to do with Zarathustra. I, I mean, including Nietzsche scholars and who ignore it. I, I think that's a mistake. Yeah, I mean, I mean, I, I agree with. I mean, the, the person who's really been in the lead of. Um, encouraging people to take Zadotusta seriously as the source of Nietzsche's deepest ideas as a scholar called uh, Paul Loeb. Yeah, and, and his, his work is excellent. Um, it is. Yeah, I mean, he's a really good commentator on um, Zadotustra. And so I, I agree that uh, we should not ignore Zadotustra, but, but I would not counsel beginning with it. Yeah, so I say Schopenhauer's educator, gay science. Of course, a lot of people begin their uh, Nietzsche journey with uh, on the genealogy of morals. I think it lends itself most easily to uh, syllabi in uh, moral philosophy courses, sure. and I think that's understandable, um, and it's worth reading. But but there's something about genealogy, though. It is a great book, but its tone is awfully sour in many places. You do miss out on his lightness and his uh, joie de vivre. Yeah, yeah, you, you you miss out on those things. Uh, yeah, on, on on the sheer sort of joyousness and exuberance that that you get, uh, you know, throughout the gay science. So I. Yeah, but look, there's no one answer to that. I mean, uh, essentially, my advice is 
privilege the primary text. Uh, Nietzsche is a great writer. He can be read directly. He doesn't have to have intermediaries. But uh, then when you get to the point where uh, you want commentary, well, then go for it. And uh, yeah, there, there's a lot of great stuff out there. Thank you very much, Robert. That was fantastic. Well, thank you. This has been a real pleasure, Patrick. Uh, uh, I've, I've enjoyed every minute of it. Uh...